We are in Romans chapter 9. If you need a Bible that looks like Bud can help you out. Romans 9. We've talked a lot about community so far this year. The importance of community, God calling us to community, church as community. One of the hard parts of community, one of the difficult things about living in community is when someone leaves. And I'm not, I'm not talking about when someone leaves Calvary or leaves any local fellowship. That happens, obviously. Happens for good reasons. God calls people out. He redeploys their gifts. Sometimes it happens for less good reasons, but it happens. And, it, and it's not easy going from being knit together as a family to being separated, just, just like when somebody leaves home in, in, in our biological families. There's a, there's a sense of loss, sometimes almost a sense of grieving. But it's one of those things that happens. But, but the, the hurt of that pales in comparison to when someone doesn't just leave Calvary or any local church, but when someone leaves the church, capital C Church, when someone walks away from the family of God altogether. And we've all seen that happen, haven't we? If you've walked with the Lord any length of time at all, you've seen someone walk away from the Lord. You've seen it in this church, you've seen it in other churches you might have been a part of. Wherever the family of God is, wherever the family of God has ever been, there have been those people who walked with us for a time, sojourned with us, people that, that we thought were a part of us who walked away, not just from us, but walked away from God. What, 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 do we, what do we do with that? How are we supposed to make sense of that? Especially in light of what Paul spent like all of Romans 8 talking about. Nothing, no one will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Ex except then people leave and are separated from God. As we turn back to Romans 9 this morning, I think there's a sense in which Paul is writing to us about that. He's writing to us, he's writing, he's writing to people like us, and he's... And he's and he's, and he's speaking to us as we wonder, okay, if that's true, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, what happened to so-and-so? What happened to, to this person, to that person? Where did my friend go? If you think back to last week, you'll recall Paul's in the middle of responding to a narrower form of that question, a more specific objection to his bold statement, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul knows having said that, having said what he said at the end of chapter 8, he knows some of his readers will ask, what about Israel, Paul? Nothing can separate us from the love of God because we're God's people now? You're telling me that's how it works? You're sure of that. You're promising that. Well, then what do you do with the fact that there's a whole nation of God's people who are pretty separated from them? What do you do with that, Paul? What are we supposed to think about the promises you're making in light of that? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Israel is pretty separated from the love of God. 
or so it would seem. How can both of those things be true at the same time, Paul? Paul's going to start in on his answer this morning. Last week he just said, it's a good question, and I want you to know that I care deeply about the answer. This week he's going to start giving us the answer. And he's going to keep going for three chapters. But he's going to start this morning. And as he does, as he explains the present distance between God and Israel, the distance that persists to our day, obviously, I think we're actually going to get some insight as regards the distance between God and some other people we know. Some people who used to sit next to us in this very room. I haven't gotten to pray yet. I'm going to pray. Lord, I, I echo what my sister said, and, and we plead with you. Having come here, having prepared our hearts to hear from you through worship, Lord, do please, by your grace, speak to us now. You tell us your word doesn't return void, but, but we're going to ask for even more than something, Lord. We want the specific something that everything that you brought each one of us here to receive, to, to see, to understand. You know each of us personally and perfectly. Would you meet us personally and perfectly in this time? We ask in Jesus' name. Romans 9 verse 6 is where we left off. Let's dive in. Romans 9, verse 6. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not, Paul says, it's not that God's promises have failed because they can't. God's promises are just that. They're God's promises. They quite literally cannot fail. Now here Paul is speaking, again, specifically about Israel and speaking specifically about God's promises to Israel. And he's saying nothing has happened to disrupt or destroy those promises. It's not like God didn't see the cross coming. It's not like God wasn't ready for Israel to reject her Messiah. It's not like God is now in heaven saying, oh, recalculating, recalculating. I, I, didn't, I wasn't ready for this. Now all the rules have to change. Erase all of those promises. They don't apply anymore. No, what's happening, Paul says, still verse 6, the reason that this is troubling, he says to us, is we've missed a crucial distinction. For they are not all Israel, verse 6, who are of Israel. Paul says, you're wondering what happened to Israel. The answer is there's Israel, and then there's Israel. There's physical Israel and spiritual Israel. You can think of it as there's biological Israel, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's believing Israel, the followers of God. It's not the first time Paul has made this point. He actually made it back in chapter 2. Romans 2, verse 28, he says, He's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He's saying spiritual Israel is not about physical qualities and characteristics. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, spiritually, and whose circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not on the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Paul made this point in chapter 2. There's Israel and then there's Israel. There's Israel who is Israel because of their heredity, because of 
outward surgery, circumcision. But then there's Israel that is Israel inwardly, spiritually, because of heart surgery. He made the point in chapter 2, now he's coming back and he's making it again. He's telling his readers, look, before we can have this conversation, before we can talk about God's promises to his people Israel, we need to be clear about what Israel we're talking about. Physical or spiritual? Biological or believing? Why is Paul being so fussy? Why is he being so fastidious and meticulous? We talked about it last week. He's writing, remember, he's writing to a church he's never been to. He's writing to people he's mostly never met. So he wants to be as clear as possible. He's falling all over himself to make sure that he's not misunderstood. So as he continues in verse 7, he says, let me give you a couple examples. Let me help illustrate this with some stories that you'll all be familiar with. Not all children are God's children because they're the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. Verse 8, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now it's a little bit cryptic to our ears, but the Jewish readers would have immediately recognized he was talking about Isaac and Ishmael. How do we know? Verse 7, he's quoting from Genesis. He's quoting Genesis 21, verse 12, where God says to Abraham, in essence, you've got two sons, Ike and Ish. All the promises that I made to you, promises about the land, promises about your eternal inheritance, promises about the Messiah and salvation and deliverance, promises that the, about the kingdom and promises that through you all of the nations of the world will be blessed. I'm going to fulfill those promises through Isaac. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise, verse 9, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Again, hearkening back to the promise of Isaac. Both Isaac and Ishmael were Abraham's sons. Only one was a child of promise. Only one was part of God's plan. Both were his physical seed, but this is Paul's point, only Isaac was his spiritual seed. What Paul is, 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 is illustrating is that not all of Abraham's descendants participate equally in God's promises. So far, so good? Okay, now remember how Paul likes to work. Remember how he writes. He makes a point, anticipates what his reader is going to say, and then answers that. And that's what he's about to do. He just said not everyone who's physically descended from Adam, uh, Abraham rather, is spiritually part of God's plan and God's promises. Look at Isaac and Ishmael. That was his first example. But wait, someone might say. Ike and Ish were both sons of Abraham, but they had different mothers. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe it was mom's fault. That's what someone might say. And Paul knows that's what someone might say. So he answers, verse 10, that's a good point. Except no, not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, not only this, Paul says, not only did we talk about Isaac and Ishmael, but this, let me give you another example. Not only this, but this. We talked about Abraham and or, or, or Isaac and, and Ishmael. Let me give you another example. Think about Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau had the same parents, right? In fact, they were twins. 
But again, only one of them was part of God's plan. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Not on the basis of anything that either one of them had done, they hadn't been born yet, but because God decided it was going to be that way, God said, my plans for Israel will be fulfilled through Jacob. Even in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is Paul's point, God was setting wheels in motion, setting plans in motion, arranging and engineering the fulfillment of the promises he'd made. And he's telling us, verse 11, it's not going to be about works. It's not going to be about obedience and disobedience. How do we know? Jacob disobeyed a lot. No, from the beginning, God had a plan for how he was going to keep his promises. And it was going to be through people that he chose. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. As it is written, verse 13, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This time he's quoting Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And it's important to recognize, or, or you'll go off on crazy rabbit trails, he's quoting Malachi in service of the point he just made. These are, these are powerful words, right? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Those are powerful words, and they're often misconstrued. Paul is not saying, Malachi is not saying, and God is not saying, I love Jacob, and he got absolutely every blessing I had to give ever, hated Esau, and he got nothing whatsoever from, from me. He's not saying that. How do we know? Esau himself said, I am a blessed man. Genesis 33, verse 9. Esau said, I, I have been the recipient of blessings. What Paul is pointing at, and the reason he's quoting Malachi, he's emphasizing from Jacob came Israel, a nation of promise. Messiah, kingdom, deliverance, the rest. From Esau comes Edom, which when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, Edom will be a wasteland. We've got to keep our eyes on the main point. Or we're going to go off on rabbit trails that are, that are unproductive and, and, and many of them unbiblical. Paul's point in these verses is that God never said everyone descended from Abraham will be blessed the exact same way. In fact, he said they wouldn't. Ishmael won't be blessed the same way Isaac was blessed. Esau won't be blessed the same way Jacob is blessed. And so, too, spiritual Israel might be blessed differently than physical Israel, biological Israel. A lot of people take that, sit with that, absorb that, and respond violently to it. Oh, so what you're saying is it doesn't matter what we do or don't do. We're either chosen or not chosen, and God decided that before we were born. And if God didn't choose us, then he hates us, and there's no good future for us. We might as well just crawl down and die. It's not what Paul is saying. He's actually going to spend the rest of the chapter telling us that's not what he's saying. 
Once again, he's going to do the thing that he does where he anticipates a response and then goes ahead and answers it. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That's what I know you're going to ask, and here's my answer. Certainly not. But let's do that next week. I want to pause at verse 13 this morning before Paul takes us into the deep weeds trying to explain what he's not saying. I want to pause here and consider what he is saying. And what it implies, not just for Israel, but for you and me. Verses 6 through 13, our passage this morning. Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. Paul told us two stories to make three points. Told us about Isaac and Ishmael, told us about Jacob and Esau. Reminded us of two Bible stories to emphasize three things. One, Israel was never blessed because they were deserving. Israel was always blessed and only blessed by grace because they were the people of God's choosing. Jacob didn't deserve to become Israel. He just didn't. And God said he didn't deserve it, verse 11. Before he was born and had done anything good or bad, God chose him. That's point number one. But point number two that we just read, that Paul just illustrated for us, point number two, being chosen isn't enough. All Israel was chosen. All of Israel is Abraham's seed, and Isaac's seed and Jacob's seed. All seed of the promise, all had the, benef- uh, the opportunity to benefit from the promise. All had the chance to participate in the promise. All Israel was chosen, But not all Israel will be blessed. Why not? Because not all of Israel is choosing. Not all of Israel has chosen. Very little of Israel is choosing. And only a remnant of Israel will choose to follow God. It's not enough, Paul is saying, to be children of the promise physically, we also have to, they also have to lay hold of the promise spiritually. And much of Israel in Paul's day, as in Jesus' day, especially the leadership of Israel in Jesus' day, refused the promise. Rejected the promise because they rejected the person that God sent to fulfill the promise. And so rejected the blessings that come with the promise. But here's Paul's third point. The fact that some reject God's promises doesn't negate them. The fact that some reject God's promises, decline to participate in them, doesn't change them. The fact that Israel refused to see God's plan in Jesus' day doesn't change the plan. God still has promises to keep, promises that he made to Abraham, Promises he made to David, for that matter. But those promises will only come to those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who believe them, who reach out for them and embrace them, who believe the word of the Lord who made them, who made those promises, and who believe on the one that God sent to fulfill them, who believe on Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Paul says. That's a promise. What about Israel, asks his reader. What about Israel, asks Paul. Well, God broke his promises to Israel. No, he didn't, Paul says. 
God's promises to Israel, the land, the Messiah, the kingdom, salvation, blessing, all of them, they're still in effect. They're still in the process of being fulfilled. What you're seeing right now, Paul is saying, is Israel not being interested. What you're witnessing right now is Israel rejecting God's plan because they rejected the person God sent to fulfill his promises. But not forever. One day that will change, and when it changes... When Israel changes, when a, when a remnant of Israel, a future remnant, is ready to accept God's provision in the person of Jesus Christ, all the promises will still be waiting. Israel can't lay hold of those promises right now until she changes her mind about Jesus. She can't lay hold of those promises because the promises come through a person. But, and this is hugely important, she can't forfeit them either. God's promises to Abraham were unconditional. They were not a contract where, okay, Abraham, if you and your guys do this, then I'll do that. No, they were unconditional. God said, I am going to do this. I am who I am, and I am going to do these things for you, unconditionally. Not because Israel deserved it, but because grace. Israel did nothing to deserve them. So, so, so it makes sense then, they can't do anything to erase them. They can only accept them or reject them, walk in them or rebel against them. And let's bring it back around. Let's talk about you and me, because that's the story of some of the people who have sat in these chairs with us. Maybe someone who sat in the exact same chair that you're sitting right now. Or the person who sat next to you in a men's group. Or sat across from you in a women's group. Or who, who, who went to a home group with you. Maybe someone who lived in your home with you. The same things Paul said about Israel, the same things he said were true about Israel, are also true for the church, aren't they? Let, let's pressure test it and see if that's not correct. No one is part of the church. No one is part of the family of God because we deserve it. Just like Israel, God didn't change, uh, choose us based on our worth or our worthiness. He chose us all because of grace. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves us, why? Because he loves us. Why does God love Israel? Because he decided to. It's the same situation. Second thing, whoever believes on him or in him. Those are the translations we're used to seeing. The Greek literally says whoever believes into him. And doesn't that resonate marvelously with things that we've read in Romans? You and I who are in Christ Jesus, right? Whosoever believes in into him will not perish. What does that tell us? Just being chosen isn't enough. Israel, God chose Israel to be the land, to be the people of Messiah. Israel said, no, he's not our Messiah. God chose to offer us the same salvation that same Messiah brought, the forgiveness that that Jesus purchased. He offered it to you and me, only to have many of us do the same thing that Israel did. Say no. We were chosen, but we didn't choose in return. 
Here's the good news, though. Again, paralleling everything we've talked about, number three, the fact of salvation, whether someone accepts it or rejects it, does not do one thing to change God's plan for salvation. The fact that some say no to God's plan doesn't mean God's plan isn't working. It doesn't mean that God's forgiveness isn't available. It doesn't mean his love isn't real. It just means from the beginning, God has been choosing people to have an opportunity to choose him. From the beginning, all the way back to Adam and Eve, God has been choosing people and giving them an opportunity to choose him. He doesn't want robots. That's not a relationship. God never forces anyone to choose anything. Even when, it, even when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, Paul says, all Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. 26. When he says all Israel, he means spiritual Israel. All those who are alive who choose to be. All those who want to be. All, all, all those who are still alive to be, because two-thirds of them will die in the tribulation. Those who are still alive who didn't die in the tribulation while they were making up their minds. Spiritual Israel, Paul, Paul's point, is always a matter of choice. It's a choice first century Israel made. It's a choice a lot of our friends are making today. Paul talks about physical and spiritual Israel, but everything he says about physical and spiritual Israel, we could say about the church. Physical Israel says, isn't it enough my parents are Jewish? The physical church says, isn't it enough that my parents are Baptist? Physical Israel says, hey, I tithe and I go to the temple and I burn offerings. The physical church says, hey, I go to church more Sundays than not, and sometimes I even serve in ministry. Spiritual Israel, the remnant, the survivors who recognize Jesus and repent and call on his name will be saved when he comes again. The spiritual church are those who recognize Jesus and repent and call on his name when he comes for us. And I wonder this morning if we're maybe not emphasizing that enough. I wonder if we're maybe not talking about that enough. Because we talk about helping each other and serving each other. We say, hey, check out this, this, this book about Jesus that I'm reading. Hey, check out this new song that I heard. Hey, I want to pray for you. Hey, I got a, a cool God story to tell you. But are we stopping to ask each other, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you think he is? What, what do you think about what he says about himself? What have you decided about him? I think if we had those conversations more often, we would discover that some people that we know, maybe some people that, that come to church with us, are more interested in the idea of God than an actual relationship with God. I think if we had those conversations more often, we might discover that there are those who really like hanging out with Jesus' people, but haven't decided about Jesus the person. And look, Jesus told us it was going to be like that, right? Parable of the soils. Matthew 13. The seed was what? He didn't tell us there was going to be a quiz. <laughs> Parable of the soils. The seed is the word of God. The soil is our heart. 
Sometimes the seed finds good soil, it grows, it bears fruit. Sometimes the seed just bounces off. Doesn't even make it to the soil. Bounces off our pride, bounces off our intellect, doesn't ever make it to the heart. But there's two other kinds of soil. Some seeds find stony soil. Heart's all excited at first. Oh, Jesus is the next cool thing I want to try. But as soon as things get hard, I'm on to the next cool thing. Some seeds find thorny soil. Hearts that are interested in what God has to say, but when God doesn't offer them the same immediate gratification, the same instant satisfaction that the world promises, they're also on to the next thing. And there's a lot of conversations we could have about all four types of soil, but my question this morning is, are we, you and me, we, doing everything we can to give all the seeds a chance? Are we doing all we can to prepare the soil, to break up the soil, to weed the thorns out of the soil, to water the soil? Are we explaining clearly, compellingly who Jesus is and what he's done, what, what, what he's done for humanity in general, what he's done specifically, personally for us? Are we sharing who he is? Are we talking about the, the reality of walking with Jesus, the blessings, and, and, and yeah, the hard things? Are we inviting people to say yes to the person, to get in on God's plan, to partake of his promises? Or are we assuming that the person sitting next to us has the same relationship with Jesus that we do? Are we assuming the physical church is also the spiritual church? Or that all of the physical church is going to be saved? Because that's just not true. We can be part of making it true, making it more true. We can be part of inviting people into the spiritual church, into the family of God, into eternity with Jesus. Even people who are already here. Some need that invitation. Do we get that that's our job? People who are here might need to be explicitly invited into the family of God. People who have walked away from here. People who have walked away from other fellowships. People who have said no to church. People who say I've been hurt by church. Okay, I'm sorry that that happened to you. Because that must have hurt a lot. But what about Jesus? There's encouragement to draw from these verses. I hope you see that. Paul is saying here, and he's going to continue to say, God's not done with Israel. When that remnant of Israel, believing Israel, that comes through the tribulation, having been chastened to repentance, calls on the name of the Lord proclaims Jesus who came, Jesus that we handed over to be crucified is Jesus who died for our sin, that remnant will be saved. And, and let's define our terms because that's kind of Christianese, saved. You keep saying saved. What is saved, Patrick? What do I need to be saved from? Hell. We are all born into sin. Blame Adam and Eve because they started it, except that if we had been there instead of Adam and Eve, 
we would have done the same thing. God gave humanity a choice. Good, evil. We said evil looks pretty good. And we've been saying that ever since. We're born into sin and we prove it by sinning. Every one of us has made that same choice. There's good, there's evil, yes. I want this one. So where are we? That leaves us separated from God who created us because he's perfect and good and righteous and holy and can't have anything to do with anything that isn't. We would have been separated from God forever. That's what we needed to be saved from, rescued from. But how? We did the crime. <laughs> Stands to reason we got to do the time. The time is forever, by the way. How can God satisfy the justice and yet show us mercy? Jesus. Jesus, fully man and fully God, died for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus says, pick me. Put me to death in his place, in her place, in their place, in their place. He was fully man so he could die. The remission of sin requires blood. Jesus says, I'll become a man so I can die, but I'm going to stay God so that I can die for everybody else's sin, not having to die for my own. I'm going to be God so that I can die for everybody else's sin because I'm God. And my blood is billions of times more precious. My death can pay for his sin and their sin and her sin and their sin. Jesus traded places with us. He came, he hung on the cross, and as he did, he said, here's the deal. I'll take all of your sin, and I'll bear all of God's wrath, all of the punishment that sin deserves. All you have to do is take all of my righteousness. Let's trade. That's what it is to believe into Jesus, to say, yes, Jesus, fully man and fully God, died a death that was sufficient to cover my sin, and I want it to. I want to be saved. That's what we're talking about. Israel will have that opportunity on the other side of the tribulation. Having been chastened for seven years, Israel will say, we get it now. The Jesus we handed over to be crucified came for us. And the death he died, he died for us as much as anybody else. But were the anybody else? The person who leaves the church, who says, yeah, I tried Jesus, but it didn't really work out for me. When they've gone through their own personal tribulation, when the world has beat them up and drugged them around and, and shaken them down, when they're ready to say, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness, I want Jesus, that person can be saved as well. It doesn't matter if they said no to Jesus once upon a time or twice upon a time or 200 times 200 times. If they're still alive, they can say yes to Jesus. That's always the rub, though, if they're still alive. Sobering thought, two-thirds of Israel doesn't make it through the tribulation. The believing remnant that calls upon the name of the Lord is a fraction of the population Israel begins with. The believing population of the church age is a fraction of the people 
who have walked through the doors of a church. I mean, you see this. Walk around Wichita, talk to people. It's really rare that we encounter anyone who's completely unchurched, isn't it? Most people, if you talk to them, grew up in church. Their parents go to church. They go with them sometimes, Christmas and Easter, if nothing else. I used to go to church. My girlfriend goes to church. I went to youth camp when I was a kid, got baptized at a youth retreat. Oh, what about now? Now I'm kind of doing my own thing. It's not too late for anyone. God's plan is still in effect for everyone. But they have to choose to say yes. They're chosen, but they have to choose. And statistically, we know very few will. What do we do with that fact? Do we let it encourage us or discourage us? Do we let it light a fire under us? Or do we lapse into complacency? Well, it probably won't make a difference anyway. There's one thing, exactly one thing we can do on earth that we can't do in heaven, and that's tell people who don't know about Jesus about Jesus. Are we doing that? Who are we talking to? Who are we encouraging? Who are we inviting? Who are we having conversations with before they end up leaving? And, and if they do, it's not too late for anyone to come back. It's not too late for anyone to believe the gospel and ask forgiveness and follow Jesus. God's not done saving sinners out of the world. He's not done with his plan. But we're part of his plan. He's not done keeping his promise to seek and save the lost. But we're how he does that. He's not done giving stony-hearted people and thorny-hearted people another chance. But most of them, most of the time, need to hear it from someone like us. God's still in the second chance business. I remember my early days as a pastoral intern. There was a guy who showed up and started serving who was on fire with two syllables, fire. I was intimidated because I thought that I was all in for the Lord. He was next level. Went on a missions trip with him to Nicaragua. He's everywhere. He's building. He's serving food. He's doing children's church. He's leading worship. He doesn't know how to play guitar, but he's doing it anyway. I come back from the trip and I like this guy's, we got to put this guy in leadership. An older brother in the Lord, Mark Nigro, um, did our men's retreat a few years ago. Had more dis discernment than I did. And he says, he's not running on Jesus, he's running on adrenaline. He's not serving Jesus, he's getting high on ministry. I said, really? He said, really? Watch what happens the first time something bad slaps him in the face. And sure enough, what happened is he went back to drugs. It was, and, and it was literally, it was drinking one night, pop, pot the next night, back hooked on heroin a week later. He loved the vibe of Jesus' people, loved the body of Christ. He loved the safety and the unity of the family of God, didn't love God. Because he didn't know Jesus. I'm not guessing, he told me. But not, not right away. It was three or four years before anybody saw him. I don't, I, I don't think anybody knew anything about what happened to him for three or four years. One night he drives his motorcycle up the steps into a retreat center where we used to do men's retreats. Drives his motorcycle into the building, passes out. Staff find him the next day. They look at him and say, dude, you need Jesus. 
He said, yeah, I do. He went through a U-turn for Christ kind of, a, kind of a program. He's been an assistant pastor in inner city Philadelphia for like 10 years. He's who we're talking about. Because his story is Israel's story, is his story, is so many people's stories. God didn't choose him because he deserved it. God chose him because grace. But being chosen wasn't enough. God chose him. He still had to choose God. And even serving in ministry, he hadn't done that yet. And when he didn't right away, when he ended up back on the street putting poison in his arm, God's offer of forgiveness didn't go away. His plan of salvation was still in effect. He, he, he didn't do anything to earn it, so he couldn't do anything to wreck it, right? He wrecked his motorcycle. He couldn't wreck God's plan. The only question is whether he wanted in on God's plan. And when he was ready, God's plan was still there for him. Jesus was still there for him. I'm just glad that he didn't die crashing his bike. I'm just glad he didn't die in the three or four years before he crashed his bike. If he had, if he had, the question I would have regretted never asking is, hey, you're here with Jesus' people. You're singing Jesus' songs, doing Jesus' stuff. Are you a Jesus guy? How do you know? What do you think that means? Do you want to pray? Jesus tells us in eternity, many are going to roll up on him saying, Lord, Lord. Matthew 7, 22. Matthew 7, 22, Jesus says, many in eternity will say, Lord, Lord, I... I I, I went to church, I prayed in church. I sang the songs, even the ones I didn't like. I served in ministry. I, I had a home Bible study at my house and Jesus is going to answer, who are you again? I never knew you. And it won't be Jesus' fault. But, but I went to church, I prayed in church, I sang in church, I served in ministry, I had a home Bible study. Yeah, but I never knew you because you never wanted to know me. Can you think of anything more important? Can you think of anything more loving than having that conversation on this side of eternity? Can you think of anything more important to do than have that conversation here when the answer can change before someone has it with Jesus? You go to church, you pray in church, you serve in ministry. There's a Bible study in your home. That's awesome. Do you know Jesus? Why do you think you know Jesus? How do you know Jesus? Do you want to pray? And I want to give people an opportunity to do that this morning. As Grayson and Abby come back up, do you know Jesus? Not everyone can point at a moment in time where they said yes to Jesus. But if we're honest, we can all say, I've trusted my eternity to Jesus. I've gone to him and, and said, I need forgiveness. And I know that you're offering it on the basis of what you did on the cross. If we're, if we're honest, we, we can all say, yes, I have done that. Or no, I haven't gotten around to that. 
Yes, I've done that. No, I don't quite know what I think about that. There's no one here who can't know which side of that line you're on. If you're genuinely unsure, ask God right now. Pray in your heart. God, show me. He will. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. But here's my question. Do you want the answer to change? If you're on the outside looking in, do you want that answer to change this morning? You're here hanging out with Jesus' people. We're singing Jesus' songs. You probably said amen to a Jesus prayer. But have you said amen to Jesus? Have you said, I'm a sinner who needs forgiveness? I want to invite you to think about that. I want to invite you to pray about that. Because again, God who made you will speak to you about this. This whole creation revolves around this question, this question of salvation, this question of God's love reaching into our sin and rescuing us. If you've never said yes, do you want to change that answer this morning? Ponder that as we worship. Ponder that as Jesus' people pray.
Don't believe the lie of the enemy that it's too late, that the stuff you've done is too much, too many, too often, for too long. Look at Israel. Israel's been in rebellion for hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet God tells us again and again, one day, one day when Israel is ready to look at Jesus and say, yes, you died for my sin, the forgiveness is still there. And it's still there for you this day, right now, today. God's chosen you. From, from before the foundations of the world, God chose you. Have you chosen him? If not, pray with me right now. Change your answer. Pray your way into the kingdom by saying, yes, Jesus did the heavy lifting. All you have to do is believe into him. If you're ready, pray with me right now. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I'm a sinner. I've looked at right and wrong, and I've chosen wrong. I am far from God, but I want to come home. I want a relationship with God who created me. I want to be with God for all of eternity. So Jesus, come into my life. Save me. Change me. Rescue me and deliver me from this world. Bring me home to heaven. I ask in your holy name, amen. If, if, if that was for you, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. I'm going to beg you to do one thing. Tell someone. Because seconds from now, not even minutes, seconds from now, if it hasn't happened already, Satan is going to start trying to rip you off. He's going to tell you that wasn't real, it didn't happen, you didn't mean it, or a thousand other lies. He's the father of lies. That's his job. He's really good at it. Tell someone. Because that does a couple things. Saying it out loud makes it real. It, not, not real in the sense that, 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 it, that it happened. Real in the sense that, that hearing you say it will help you remember it, will help you keep believing it. The second thing is someone else will believe it and will pray for you and will keep praying for you. Practically speaking, we can get you a Bible and some stuff. Let one of the pastors or elders know we'll be in the corners of this room at the end of the service. We, we want to help you get you started. We want to know you. We want to be family with you in every sense of the word. Tell someone, do not be sheepish, do not be scared. You might be saying, okay, but I've been coming to this church for like years. How embarrassing would it be to tell someone, yeah, I finally received Jesus. There is no one in this room who won't be overjoyed. 
I, 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 th- I think back to, to the, the, again, those early days as a pastoral intern. I was, I was taking a class, and it was our church and a bunch of other churches going to this, to this leadership class, the spiritual leadership class. And you met Pastor Ed last year, my mentor. He's teaching the class. At the end of the class, he, he, he does what I just did. He gives a gospel invitation. He invites people to, to raise their hand and come forward and receive Jesus. Two pastors came, I'm looking at him like everyone here is a, like a pastor or a leader or something. Two pastors came forward. An assistant pastor from one church, a senior pastor, a senior pastor from another church. People who, whose, whose day jobs were telling people about Jesus did not know Jesus themselves, but I have never seen a more ecstatic room than when people who's, who, like, who knew all about Jesus knew Jesus. And we're known by Jesus. That's my way of saying, don't let, don't let pride or embarrassment stand in the way. The only thing you're missing out on is a really big hug and a fervent prayer. We're going to celebrate communion now. And as we do, switch gears with me. This is really the reciprocal function. We've been talking and we've been talking about coming to Christ. It's never too late. It's always a prayer away. The the, the other thing that Paul is saying, let's, let's end where we started. There's nothing that can separate us, you and I who are in Christ. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus for you and I who are in him, for you and I who have believed into him. Because that's the other way Satan wants to rip us off. It's not just people hanging around the edges. It's not just the thorny-hearted, stony-hearted people that Satan is pulling out of churches. It's believers who are convinced it's not worth it. I can't come back from it. It's too late. Or a thousand other lies because Satan's the father of lies and he's really good at it. As we consider the bread and the cup, consider what that means. Jesus, in his perfection, died on the cross and said as he hung there, paid in full. There is not a sin you will ever commit that Jesus hasn't already paid for. If you have chosen him, knowing that he chose you from before the foundations of the world, your eternity is secure. No one and nothing can take that away, not even you. So as the elders distribute the, the bread and the cup, look at those emblems, those symbols. Jesus gave them to us with purpose. He, he gave them to us very intentionally. He said, look at, the, look at the cup and consider my blood. Look at the matzah and consider my body, striped and pierced and broken. And think about the death that I died. But think about this this morning. Think about the fact that it's perfect. It's complete. And nothing, if we've said yes to Jesus, nothing can change that. Hang on to the bread and the cup, we'll partake together. But rejoice in his death. Rejoice in the life that we have as you do.